0: Welcome to uh, Charlie Brown's Winter Wonderland. That's what this is before you. You can see, obviously, the stage is a bit of a construction zone. There's sawdust all on the floor up here, and they're still working on this marvelous thing. And it is, if you haven't figured out yet, actually an ice skating rink. And so this play, which will begin in here in a couple of weeks and go right on through Christmas, so this is, this is our Christmas set, is going to involve ice skaters on rollerblades and they'll be skating all the way around this circle in the play and so it's kind of a crowd interactive sort of thing and that's why the set is the way it it is before you Uh, and so I say all that of course to explain what you see but also to warn you for communion you can see we have the, the tables up here and the table down in front as normal the traffic flow will be the same as it always is just a little bit tighter on the movement especially for those who come to the front table down here on the floor because there are a couple of little stepping hazards from that white platform back there down into the aisles, and you folks that are down here already found those, and hopefully nobody tripped. But just beware and don't trip on those steps as you come down. And uh, I think the ushers will be able to direct you appropriately from there. So there you go. Come and see the play. We've been studying the book of Esther together for a few weeks now. And this is that uh, interesting story at the end of your Old Testament about the young Jewish woman living in Persia about 480 years before the birth of Christ. It's a story of God's providence shown in His preservation of His people for the sake of His keeping of His promise to heal the world through His Son, our Redeemer. And so we're going to actually cover three chapters this morning together, five, six, and seven, but we'll only read what's on page six in front of you in your bulletin, and then we'll cover the rest as we go. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached And touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. And Esther replied, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman at once, so that we may do what Esther has asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, The king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. The suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would come among us. We know that you have and are among us because you've invited us to come and worship. And so we pray, Father, that you would make good use of your word this morning in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, and increase our faith and make us new to see your good news in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. I have never read a Jane Austen novel. I'm just confessing to you. That famous British author from 200 years ago, I, I've never read one of her novels, and I know that some of you probably are appalled at that confession on my part. How can he be so uncultured? Others of you probably are relieved that I've not read a Jane I, I don't know, I'm just wondering. Maybe some of you are just thinking, well, you haven't either, and you never will, and now I have an excuse not to, because my pastor hasn't either. I don't know. I know she wrote some famous novels, and, and a couple of the most famous ones are, are titled with the pairing of a couple of descriptive words, sense and sensibility, pride and prejudice. I haven't read them. They're not my speed, so I have to confess I don't even know the storyline in them. I do know, though, that in them she described life in a privileged British social class of her day some 200 years ago. And I expect that if I were to begin reading, say, Pride and Prejudice, I would gradually come to figure out that there is in the story a character who is prideful and there is in the story a character who's prejudiced. I guess. I I assume that would be the case. Some of you, I don't see any heads nodding, but I'm assuming maybe that's the case, right? And I would also, being the clever person I am and knowing something about both pride and prejudice, I would assume that the character or characters are one and the same because those two things go together. Over 2,000 years before Jane Austen wrote those novels, the writer of the Book of Esther did something similar. He or she wrote to describe life in a privileged Persian social class. And as you read this story, you come to figure out that one character is very prideful and another character is very powerful and they are not one and the same. Inevitably, there's conflict between the two of them and the power of God prevails over the pride of man every time it's about 480 bc or so and the israelites are in exile they've been scattered abroad in the land of babylon and now persia for some hundred years at this point at esther's life and they had been as a people released by king cyrus now decades before to go back to their homeland and rebuild their cities jerusalem in particular but many of the jews had stayed in the land of exile including Mordecai and his younger cousin, Esther. And now, as we've seen already by God's providence and because of her stunning beauty, Esther is now the queen to King Xerxes. We've seen how Haman, that government official, was promoted to be the second in command, the prime minister, we might say. And Haman, begrudging Mordecai's refusal to bow before him had plotted to destroy all the Jews. And now Esther has a dilemma on her hands because Mordecai has come to her and challenged her to see God's providence in her current position. And she has a dilemma because she recognizes that in order for her to save her people, she must do two things. She must identify with her people, which she had not yet, And she must intercede for her people. And it comes at great risk because the law says that no one can come into the king's presence uninvited at penalty of death. And Esther was not invited. She knows it's going to be a risky proposition, but she concedes to Mordecai and she says, I'll go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. And so now... On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. It's the third day. Now, you remember how last week's passage concluded, I think. On the third day, it had been three days now of mourning and fasting on the part of the Jews. Esther had requested of Mordecai, go and tell all the Jews in Susa to join me in a three-day fast. Presumably before God, but the author is careful not to mention God for thematic sorts of reasons. But it's now been a three-day fast of mourning. And the writer here is subtly offering to us a biblical theme. Okay, so back in the book of Genesis, maybe you remember, God told Abraham, what? Go and sacrifice your son, your only son Isaac. Give him back to me. And for three agonizing days, Abraham prepares and travels and takes his son to the mountain and does exactly as God has requested. And then God brings resolution, providing a ram instead of Isaac. In the prophet Jonah, that reluctant prophet casts himself into the sea, into God's providence. And for three days in the belly of the fish, Jonah, presumably dead, Post-mortem records for us his prayer from the belly of the fish for three days. And on the third day, God brought resolution and spat him up into dry land. And in the Gospels, of course, the disciples are mourning the death of their Savior, Jesus. And on the third day, God brings resolution. By doing what? By bringing about the resurrection of Christ. And so now on the third day, we know that resolution is coming, don't we? as God confronts the insatiable hunger of man, his pride. Esther's prepared for what she expects is to come. She has donned her royal robes to present herself to the king and to her great relief. You you can only imagine her great relief that the king was pleased with her, we read. The king received her into his presence. And he even asked her, what is it, Queen Esther? Because he knew the law. He knew the risk that she had taken to even come to him at this moment. He knew it must have been something significant. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Up to half my kingdom, I will grant to you. He's favorably disposed, to say the least. And with great diplomacy, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet. And the king accepts the invitation and he immediately calls for Haman and they go. And after the meal, they're drinking wine. And once again, the the king asks the queen, what's your request? What did you come for? What can I do for you? Up Up to half of my kingdom, I'll give to you. And she responds kind of curiously with a second invitation. If it pleases the king... Come to the second banquet that I'll prepare for you and Haman tomorrow, and then I'll answer your question. I don't know. We're not really told why Esther has this double banquet thing in mind, but she does. And what we do know that is that in Providence, it allows for certain events to unfold in the hours in between the two. And so Haman went out that day, and he was happy and in high spirits. Why? Because his hunger had been fed, not his stomach, but his ego. His pride had been fed. And you know it because of what he goes home and does. When the proverb tells us that pride goes before a fall, Haman has got to be the best example in Scripture of that truth. He's just the most clear example of that truth. C.S. Lewis, in his, his classic book, Mere Christianity, which all of you must read if you haven't, writes a chapter on the topic of the vice of pride. And he writes, as only C.S. Lewis probably besides God himself can, in such clear ways about this, this vice. And he says some of these things. He says that pride is a spiritual cancer. He says, it's the one vice of which no one in the world is free. And everyone loathes it, hates it in others, but cannot see it in themselves. And he goes on to say that pride is the competitive vice, which is the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Those are strong words from C.S. Lewis about pride. Now, I don't think that he's writing about the simple sorts of comments that we make. I'm, I'm so proud of my children. I'm proud of my country. I'm proud of my team. I don't think that that's what C.S. Lewis, or Scripture's word on pride, is so much about. But rather, pride is the sin, not of being satisfied with good things in your life, but rather of being convinced that you and your things are better than everyone else and their things. In fact, Lewis goes on to explain, he believes, and I expect he's right, that It was through pride that the devil became the devil. That was the one vice that caused that angel to rebel against God because he looked around him and he saw that he was pretty significant himself, but there was one more significant, and he wanted that place. He wanted to be there, and in his pride, he rebelled. Pride is what caused the devil to become the devil, and Lewis goes on to explain, you know, if if you want to know how proud you are, then just ask yourself this question. How much do I dislike it when other people ignore me or refuse to take notice of me? That is, after all, what caused Haman's problem, isn't it? Haman, his pride is obvious in his boasting, as we read before his wife and his friends. He was boasting about his wealth and about his many sons and about all the honors the king had bestowed upon him and even about the invitation he'd gotten from The queen, nobody else, only me and the king, we get to go to this banquet. Haman's got some things to boast about, but his pride is even more clear by his anger. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the gate. That's the nature of pride. That's what it does to your heart and to your soul. Mordecai has no regard for Haman. And it absolutely burns him up. That's the nature of pride. And it's an insatiable hunger in all of us. You know, we all want to be honored by those around us. We all want to be delighted in by those who we perceive to be above us. I mean, this sort of thing works out in just the basic scenarios of life. I mean, think about a a sports team. Think about the, the high school cross-country team from my, my kid's school. The boys' cross-country team recently won the state championship for their division. Remarkable accomplishment. And there's one particular runner on that team. He's the senior runner who wins every race, and he won the state title. Number one, he is the number one runner in the state for their division I don't know him I imagine he's probably a fairly humble guy but what's interesting to watch is the whole team around him looking up to him following after him and wanting to be with him and this is the kind of thing that works out in in your workplace you know think about who's in charge they're the one you want to be with they're the one you want to delight in you and you want for all of those you perceive to be on your level or below to see that the one delights in you that's the nature of pride, and our modern political system, of course, trades very heavily in this. Think about the, the debates, as we've seen you know, in recent weeks and months, the presidential debates. They're really, I think, not debates at all, but rather they're contests of pride. Now, the moderators, I suppose, try to, to foster some constructive debate, but the candidates are jockeying for position, aren't they? They have really little to say except for, I'm better than he is because of this and because of that, or she's worse than I am because of that and because of this. It's a pride contest. They're simply vying for regard from those they consider to be inferior, and they're vying for delight from any they might think are superior so that eventually they'll have no superiors. That is actually the goal of pride. And so the next day, in chapter 6, Mordecai, rather Haman, on his way to seek Mordecai's death, faces the temptation again. There in chapter 6, we read that the king poses an interesting question to Haman, one that Haman did not expect, but he thinks he's pleased to hear. The king says to Haman as he comes into his chambers, Haman, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman did not know the matters that had led to the king thinking of this question just the night before. Haman didn't know, but he assumes as only a proud person could what he assumes. And Haman replies, or thinking in his head, he thinks, Well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And so he assumes This is, it's going to be for me. And so Haman comes up with an idea. The kings ask him, after all, Haman makes a proposal and he says this, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden. Dress the man in the royal robes and have one of the king's most noble officials lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming the king's delight in him." Haman is hungry for approval. He assumes that he is the one in whom the king delights. After all, who else could it be? I'm Haman. I'm the second in charge. There is no one else besides me, he thinks. He wants the king's position. That's why he asks for a robe the the king has worn and the horse the king has ridden. He wants to be the king himself. And this insatiable hunger is a twisted part of our Yours and my fallen condition. We all long to be approved by someone greater than we are. We all long for that. And we want other people to see it. We all need it, in fact. And so the irony of this thing is that Haman wasn't seeking the wrong thing. But he was seeking, he was seeking it from the wrong king. He had gone to the wrong place to find it. His pride had deafened his ears to the quiet sovereignty of God. You know, there's only one king whose delight will satisfy your hunger because only God truly has power. Chapter 6, verse 1, at the bottom of the page, that night the king, Xerxes, could not sleep. This is perhaps the most pivotal detail in the entire story. It's the point at which the whole story turns Karen Jobes is a commentator. I mentioned to you her name before that she wrote a a, a great commentary on the book of Esther. She's, some would say, an expert on the book of Esther. It's her her subject of study. And she writes about the theme of banquets in the book of Esther. It's a a theme that comes up again and again. There are all, all these banquets in the book. And she explains the symmetry of them in the book for understanding the point of the story. She says there are eight banquets in Esther, and they're arranged in a way to highlight the pivotal detail. So at the very beginning of the book, you have two banquets. The king, Xerxes, calls for banquets. One for all the nobles of Persia, Persia, followed by a a smaller banquet for all the men in Susa. At the end of the book of Esther, you find two banquets. The Jews call for a banquet. They call it the the Feast of Purim. And there's... One large one for all the Jews of the empire, followed by, the next day, a smaller banquet of Parim for all the Jews of Susa. In between those two bookends, you find a couple more banquets. There's a, a banquet of coronation to celebrate Esther becoming queen, and there's a banquet of celebration to celebrate Mordecai's eventual promotion by the king. And in between those two bookends are Esther's two banquets, For the king and Haman. And in between those two, the king could not sleep. Now it's interesting because poetically, usually the the pivotal point would be a conflict between the hero and the villain of the story. There would be people involved in their conflict. But the writer's focus here is not on any person, it's on God, who's Sovereignty requires no proud display, but can happen in the quiet of the night. The ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they call it the Septuagint. It was written years before Jesus was even born. And I'm told that the writer of that Greek translation of the Hebrew text took his own interpretive spin unto this verse, and he wrote it this way, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. And that indeed is exactly what happened. You have to recognize that it was the Lord who was at work in that because God is sovereign. People are responsible for their actions. People are always responsible for their own actions. But the quiet sovereignty of God directs all things at all times. And what do you think the king did when he could not sleep. Well, he read, of course. Don't we all? Isn't that what we do when we can't sleep in the middle of the night? The king is no different than you or I. The king woke up and he called for a book. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. I don't know. Maybe the king figured this this list of chronicles is going to be boring. It's going to make me fall asleep. That's often what we think. Maybe the king thought... the same thing. But as he listened to this list of chronicles and the memorable deeds in the kingdom, he was reminded that five years before, a man named Mordecai had uncovered a plot of assassination and saved the king's life, and nothing had been done to reward Mordecai for that act of bravery. And now the king is favorably disposed towards Mordecai. Sometimes God puts important details in place long before they're even needed. In 1976, I read a story, not in 1976, the story happened in 1976. Governor Ronald Reagan was running for president and his top aide, Mike Dever, had been helping him in the governor's office in California with something and Reagan was reading an article and he said to Dever, come here and look at this article. This is interesting. The, the article was about the Heimlich maneuver. And Reagan explained to Dever, having read the article, he said, you know, you can save someone's life if they're choking. All you got to do, come here, Dever. And he wrapped his arms around Dever and demonstrated, you got to just wrap your arms around from behind and thrust up in their stomach underneath their rib cage and, and you'll save them from choking. Isn't that interesting, Dever? And, and Dever apparently was a little concerned that maybe somebody would come in and see the governor hugging his top aide from behind, and maybe he'd lose the vote because of it. A couple months later, they were on the campaign plane, getting on the plane to go from one place to another, and Reagan's habit was, once he got on the plane, to, to get a Coke and a pack of peanuts. He sat down in his seat, and as the plane began to lurch forward for takeoff, Reagan had tossed a peanut into his mouth, and the lurch forward caused it to go down the wrong way. And he began to choke, and he began to to turn red and kind of squirm around and undo his seat belt. He couldn't quite get out of the seat because of the tight space there on the airplane. And the other assistants noticed his distress and came to his aid, and Dever was a couple of seats away, and Reagan looked at Dever as if to say, come on, you know what I'm doing here, help me out. And Dever realized it, and he came and, and parted the sea, so to speak, and made his way to the president, wrapped his arms around him, lurched up through his gut under his ribs and out popped a peanut. You never know exactly what details are going to be put in place before they're ever needed. Sometimes God in his quiet sovereignty does just that. And because he did, to Haman's dismay, the man whom the king delights to honor is Mordecai. And with that comes the ultimate turning of tables The ultimate reversal of fortune at that moment because of that pivotal event the king couldn't sleep. Now Mordecai is honored as Haman leads the king's horse around the city square because what other noble official would the king have to do that besides Haman? And Haman to his dismay honors Mordecai and for generations to come you have to imagine the ironic humor that must have left Jews in gut-busting laughter as they read this story about their enemy. Men had gone about their business, responsible for all of their actions. And yet God, in quiet sovereignty, directed all of it. You know, God and His power is, of course, no less sovereign today. And when we gather together, Here, for the Lord's Day next week, we will probably have a new president-elect. I say probably because we've seen drama around these things before. Who knows? It might be declared Tuesday night or it might be declared next month or next year. Maybe never. Who knows? But probably next Sunday we'll have a new president-elect, right? And do you think that God will be surprised by it? Do you think that God is going to say, Wednesday morning, He's going to wake up and say, Oops, I wasn't expecting that. Guess I'm going to have to change my plans. Do you think God will say something like that? No. Of course not. Of course God will not say something like that. And yet, how will that person be elected? That person will be elected by people casting votes. You know, even your own actions matter. Even your own actions weigh in on the reality of God's sovereign plan. And yet, for the good of His people, God has put in place all the important things for the fulfillment of His promise. Not necessarily for the building of one nation, but most definitely for the building of His church, for the building of His kingdom. I read a a wise word from a blogger recently. They said, When matters are taken out of your hands, never conclude that they've been taken out of God's hands. His power is undeniable, even if it is at times undetectable to you and to me. And in the end, it will be clear in the uncompromising conclusion of justice. Now, in in chapter 7, which You don't have in front of you there unless you've got a Bible open. In chapter 7, at Esther's second banquet for Haman and for the king, the king again insists to her. He says, Queen Esther, what is your wish? What is your petition and your request for me? It shall be granted even to half of my kingdom. The king is still favorably disposed to her. And with great diplomacy, Esther responds. She says, If I found favor in your sight, O king, let my life be granted for my wish. And my people for my request, for we have been sold to be destroyed. And the king is furious, of course. Who has done this, he asks her. And Esther, I would imagine with a finger pointing, says, This wicked Haman has done it. And we're told that the king arose in his wrath and went out into the palace garden. Now, he probably had to go relieve some some stress he's angry he's furious and his top official is the one and it's a very touchy situation maybe you recognize this the king himself had approved haman's nasty plot the king had said to haman when he came to ask permission yes you can do it and and keep all the money The king had approved it himself, albeit in ignorance, but still he bears responsibility for it as the king. And so he can't just condemn a man for carrying out his own orders that he approved. He'd be disgraced. He'd lose face in front of all of his empire if he did such a thing. But while he's out, Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. And that was Haman's mistake, because there was another law on the books that said no man can be in the room with the queen if the king is not there. When the king got up and left, Haman should have taken his cue. He should have gotten up and left as well. Of course, he would have been seen then as fleeing from trouble, but he should have left. That was his mistake. He should have left, and when the king returned... To see Haman, we're told, falling on the couch where Esther was, begging for his life, the death sentence came down. Now the king had a reason to put him to death, and Esther did not say a word. Now, Now here's where some readers have a little bit of trouble again with Esther. This is, again, kind of tricky, kind of touchy, because Esther shows no pity, none whatsoever, to Haman. You know, she could have said to the king, <clears throat> look, Haman, he's just begging for his life. He's not assaulting me, King Xerxes. So maybe as a, an additional part of my petition and request, king, you could spare Haman's life too. He's sorry, and he's begging for his life. King would just spare his life too. Esther could have said that, <clears throat> but she didn't. She did not say a word. Why? Why? <clears throat> Because Esther here is not a role model for us. She is rather a role player. Haman is the Agagite. Remember, he's the enemy of the Jews. He is the one who represents the people who sought to destroy God's people and wipe them off the face of the earth. And God had centuries before had sworn, I will destroy my enemy. That people will not last King Saul had not finished the job 500 years before, so Queen Esther did. Because God's enemy meets uncompromising justice in the end. Now, for some people, maybe for you, that justice is unsettling. Maybe it feels a little uncomfortable to imagine that God is so uncompromising in this way, and and you think in your heart, who does God think he is? To be so uncompromising in a circumstance like that. How can God do that? Who does he think he is to do that? And you have to realize that even to ask that question is to put yourself above God. Even to ask that question is to do the very thing that the devil did that made him the devil. Just to engage in the question is to reveal the pride of your heart. And in it, you continue to jockey for position. You continue with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers to assert yourself and cause yourself to be seen as the more important one over and above anyone else so that the superior will delight in you. You continue to jockey for position. You continue to measure yourself against others. You continue to keep up with the Joneses, as we say. Why is that even a saying? And who are the Joneses? Why are they the ones that we have to keep up with? And yet you continue to do that. Why? Because in our heart of hearts, we think that the purpose of life is to prove ourselves. That the purpose of life is to measure up, to to outperform the next person. And when we do that, we're actually betraying our practical atheism. We're not so sure that God actually does exist, and if He does, then He must be a cruel instructor who's grading our every move, so we have to measure up. But He's not that. He's not that, Esther shows us. Esther tells us that God has rather identified with us in Christ. Christ who has interceded for us before the King and If you are in Christ, then the right king delights in you. There's no more jockeying for position. There is no more measuring up. There is no more striving to be better than all the rest. Because on the third day, he rose from the grave. And he put his royal robes on you. The power of God will always prevail over the pride and the wisdom and the strength of man. Thanks be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord our God, we give you thanks for your good news in Jesus. That you have not only called us to belong to you, but you have in your sovereign hand, brought about all things to pass that must come to pass to bring glory to your name and to build your kingdom. And we pray, Father, that you would increase our faith, even as we come to the communion table together, to trust you for your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.